Welcome to GeekSpeak. I am Lyle Troxel. I'm a software engineer. I'm also with my friend Miles Elam, also a software engineer. We've been doing the show for 18 years or so. Today we're going to be talking about predicting wind for power usage, anti-vax videos being dropped from Amazon, and a whole bunch about web authentication and what is the best way to do authentication, and a bit about home networking and security. Miles Elam, thank you for joining me. We are sitting in a studio in Los Gatos, and actually at the Netflix headquarters in Los Gatos, and this room is actually padded and soundproofed, and it's really nice to talk in. It is. Welcome to Geek Speak, Miles. <laughs> How you doing, Lyle? Pretty good, pretty good. Let's start with this, this AI wind speed thing. What, what's going on here? One of the issues with wind power is that the wind doesn't always blow, but more specifically, it doesn't blow at the same intensity all the time. So normally they choose windy spots for windmills, mm-hmm. windmills, and that's awesome. But sometimes it's higher wind than other times, and therefore more generation than other times. Right. So uh, why is that a problem? I mean, the, you make more electricity or you make less electricity. Right. But you need to have a certain, there's a certain demand for electricity, so you need to hit a certain level. And that level is going to be handled by baseload. And baseload is going to be either nuclear or fossil fuel-based. So when you say a baseload, a load that you can control the amount of energy you're getting out of it. Right. Okay. Something so, that doesn't have, a high, doesn't have a high amount of environmental variability. Right. It's a, oh, we need some more power. Well, throw more coal in. And in this case of nuclear, do you, put the two, do you heat up the reactor more or do you just... I guess the same thing, right? You right. You okay. you um you remove you have the control rods removed so that the the base fuel has more interactivity and so, generates more heat, which then you know uh, turns. I would assume the most efficient way to generate electricity means that you can't control how man- how much magnetic field the generator actually has. Because one way to deal with this would be to demagnetize the coils so that it doesn't actually do anything. You're not producing electricity. But you probably don't want to do it. Probably the the most efficient system actually has it such that you can't do that. If it's spinning, it creates electricity. Mm-hmm. There's no way to say, nope, don't do that. What about just decoupling the windmill and just, just letting it spin freely or something? Well, Is there other ways to do this? It, I guess that's, that's the that's high not, speed. That's not the issue. Going high and you know reducing the electrical load, that's, that's one thing. But the problem is knowing... Okay, when is the wind going to kick up? When is it going to drop down? Because having that very fast variability um, is much harder to handle because you need time for the fossil fuel, you know, the the oil the, refiner, the things know. to heat up. Well, yeah, to yeah. ramp up, you know, right. have the fuel system. I, I find that the entire system, the grid, is just unbelievably. It, it's amazing that it works at all. I don't even understand. <laughs> like, just imagine. Well, it, it didn't on the East Coast uh, a decade ago. Yeah, they've had problems, but in general, it's kind of incredible how stable it is. Considering, you know, a whole bunch of people turn on electricity, and you've got to generate more. And I, I get that at some level, the growth is slow compared to the amount. You know, like if you told everybody in the entire country to turn on their toaster at once, the grid would fail. Like it would just happen. There's no way to compensate for that. It depends on whether or not they were expecting it. Like, for example, if they were expecting it, with, they could get ready. With like the Super Bowl, everyone like they expect like everyone's turning on their TV around this time. Yeah, everyone is. You know. Okay, so what you have to do, is, so the the trouble with wind, unlike almost all other services, is that at a flip of a hat, it can just double. 
or half. Like you, you don't know when that's going to happen. It's having that you have to worry okay. about so much, right. much more than than doubling. So DeepMind, which is an Alphabet subsidiary, uh, DeepMind is the one that's done like all the pretty pictures, right? I believe so. Okay. Um, artificial intelligence programs, mm-hmm. their focus, and they are working on the predictability of wind power. They're looking to see how often wind, you know, kicks up in a particular area when it goes down. What are the conditions around it? Um, whether it be weather patterns or sure. you know, things like I that. I think weather prediction's been around for a while, Miles. Yes, but as it relates to exactly how much wind hits a you know particular set of turbines, it's different. Yeah, yeah, that's true. And also, you, I would assume that in different areas, you could put sensors kind of in the flow paths and kind of understand what would happen. Like mm-hmm. you could put more information in it than just like general weather. Is it going to rain in Utah? Whatever. Right. It's hard to predict. For example, when there is a polar vortex coming in because it gets so cold that the turbines have to shut down or they're going to damage themselves. Well, contraction of metal. Okay. And so you need to make preparations for that. The temperature is going to get below this point. So we're going to in and in these areas. And so you're going to have to remove this much wind power from the grid, you know, and being able to make those predictions in real time to be able to send them off or at least make predictions to say um, what they're suggesting, what DeepMind and uh, Alphabet were suggesting was 36 hours in advance. That's a long time advance. Right. Which would be immeasurably helpful to energy providers to be able to make planning ahead of time to say, oh, okay, we need to Order another another truck of coal. I mean, right. whatever it's going to is that they need to do. Right, or just keep an eye on it and actually start ramping up, even though we have a little extra capacity. You need to have a little yeah. extra capacity in the expectation of a dip. Yeah, I mean, I get that the polar vortex scenario where the the chill is going to get so low you have to shut down the system. That seems like a catastrophic thing. Is it also in the case of just you're going to have less or more wind? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So how? So taking this. Solving this problem, how how are they doing it? Are they are they achieving any goals? Are they are they gaining momentum? Well, they're working off of it's, it's a, a machine learning. It's a, yeah. or you have these AI models, and then you train the models against historical information, and then you see uh, out of a series of models which ones seem to work out the best. Right, and it's doing what human beings did with statistics for a, a long, long time, time. Yeah. but doing it at a faster rate of speed. Sure. And what they're and what's fi- cool about this yeah. course is you don't have to then wait to see how well they predict the future because we can do is you can give them half the data of the past and then match them against ha- the other half of the data and see how they did. Yeah. And I'm showing Lyle a graph right now, and you this is the predictive go- line animating forward, and then that's the f- the line afterwards what actually happened. Yes, <laughs> that's impressive. It did a really good job. <laughs> well. It's not an exact match, but it does follow a trend. It gives her a good idea. Yeah. And sometimes even an educated guess is better than no information at all. Sure. And if you want to see this pretty graph, you can go to our website at geekspeak.org and click on the link. Uh, this is coming from Ars Technica. And we'll give some more information than I've given in this podcast. Very cool. All right. So Alphabet is uh, training AI to predict wind speeds and issues 
for turbine usage. Yeah, a day and a half in advance. It's really cool because, of course, one of the things that we've talked about over the years about what type of energy sources we can rely upon, that's one of the problems with wind. You know, the problem with solar is that it works when it's sunny, so you have to put them in the in the sun. Um, and then, of course, with the wind, you've got inconsistencies in wind speeds. Yeah, so which, it's cool that this is kind of partially solving that problem or, or tackling it a bit. Right, which, on a side note, talking about renewable uh, sources of energy like solar and wind, I am still astounded. It's now been a month, I guess, since it happened. But uh, with the polar vortex that froze large portions of the, the country where you had Chicago lighting their tracks on fire to keep the, the metal warm enough so it doesn't cause uh, problems, the response that you get from people who have seemingly a vested interest in renewables not working and saying that climate change isn't real. You had folks talking about, you have the polar vortex, and how is solar going to work now? And I just have this, you know, (laughs) double face palm that's giving me two black eyes. Like, the sun is still shining when it's cold. (laughs) In fact, many solar panels work better when, they're when cold. it's cold, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> when there's sunshine, but it's cold. Yeah, that's great. Because the polar vortex was not about there being a blizzard; it was about it just being cold. <laughs> what is it? What is causes it? What, why? Why does it happen? What is this polar vortex? Yeah, wh- yeah. Why? So we have. And if you say, well, you know, wind f- travels from the northern area down. <laughs> no, 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 no. I. When you have the um, things like the jet streams, stuff like that, you have these circulating currents in the ocean, and they take cold water from the polar area regions down to the um, middle latitudes, um, and then the warm water back to the polar regions, and you end up with this circulation. What that does also is provide a buffer where you have the polar winds, the polar weather patterns are actually bounded by the rest of the weather patterns of the rest of the planet. Okay. That radiator that's exchanging heat... um, Kind of acts as a buffer to keep it at bay a little bit. Right. If, by global warming, you reduce the effect of that great radiator... Of the ocean current? Yes. Of that radiator, you then weaken the barriers the borders between the, the polar weather patterns, the polar circulation of winds, instead of seeing a cleaner circle, yeah. as it were, around the northern and southern uh, south poles, you end up with more of a uh, amoeba effect. And okay. you end up with these little bulbs coming down uh, where it's weakening. Kind of think of a, uh, uh, a solar spot with like the mag- magnetic fields mm-hmm. and they just kind of reach out and sometimes they they snap it's that same thing of you have these these pushes um because the the elastic isn't as strong anymore okay all right <laughs> and, and fork of course right but yeah, right yeah. and sometimes those those little you know pooches come down and they go over land masses and that's what you have with the with the polar vortex interesting if it goes over ocean most of the time we don't notice so yeah. is it pretty accepted that the reason why the polar vortex happen has to do with global climate change if you ask climate uh, climatologists, yes. Yeah. Okay. If okay. you ask, so yeah. If you ask the talking heads that say like, "Oh, the solar panels aren't going to work when it's cold," <laughs> then no. Speaking of uh, the talking heads, 
there's a lot of hate out there about vaccines. Yes. There's even new diseases coming, old diseases coming back to harm humans that we basically eradicated because people don't want to use vaccines. And we've talked before about why that is, and it's kind of like a propaganda machine that feeds off itself at some level, that people are scared about vaccines. And part of that, of course, has to do with you have a general population. The first time they see vaccines is when their kid gets vaccined. That's the first time they're really thinking about it as a parent, whatever. Mm -hmm. And then sometimes at around the same age, you see a kid come up with a disease that people seem to correlate. Now, there's we don't see any scientific correlation. But there's generally people go, well, this person didn't have this disease before they got the vaccine. Therefore, the vaccine caused it, which is not necessarily. But there's definitely a fear and a feeding system of that. Mm -hmm. And it's a bummer, totally a bummer that people get sucked into that. And I think it's pretty easy to get sucked into that because so many people believe that vaccines are bad for their children and right. for society. And obviously, people aren't stupid, right? This is happening for a reason. Yeah, some of it came up from... Uh, mid to late 90s, Andrew Wakefield, who lost his license, can't practice medicine anymore because he made a fraudulent study. As in, it's been repeatedly shown that it's not true. Right. It was so bad, it wasn't just like, oh, he put in bad data. It was fraudulent. He lost his license. That bad. And you have outlets like YouTube. That's where a lot of it is spreading as well. Um, it's interesting because I... I before this became a really serious problem, I definitely had that perspective of, well, as a society, we should vaccinate everybody. As a parent, if you don't vaccinate your kid, it doesn't really matter. Because if the entire society is vaccinated, the disease isn't going to be around anyway. There is a level that's acceptable to have not vaccinated. You're referring to herd immunity. Yeah. And so it is true that if measles are not being passed around and your kid lives in a society where there's no measles, you don't really need a vaccine for measles. Of course, if everyone doesn't do that, then measles is going to come back and you need a vaccine for it. So, right. And then, you, and then you run into the problem of, for the most part, it isn't a random distribution of parents that are doing this. It's parents in a particular community will have a high probability right. of... Not and that's the real danger. You actually kind of want to go against the tide of your community in the sense that if everyone's vaccinating, ah, you don't have to vaccinate. If no one's vaccinating, you better vaccinate. <laughs> <laughs> but it's so funny because it's one of those examples of, you know, when you talk about what a theory is, you know, talk to non-scientists and you talk about what theories are, you describe what a theory actually means. They go, oh, it's just an idea. Yeah, it's an idea, but it's well, you know, it's hard. No, to a hypothesis is just an idea. Sure. A theory is something that is our best guess for how things actually work. Right, but that phrase Raising of best guess is you can lean against that, right? Just like right. you can lean against. Well, it's if you don't vaccinate, it's okay. Like you can you can argue it's, that it's a theory in the same way that you don't step out of a fourth floor window because because you will die. the theory of gravity <laughs> says that you will fall to your death. <laughs> That you will be accelerated to the at nine you know, point six meters I, I per second it, per second. I find it fascinating when you have an educated population that understands the different the different nuance understands that oh i don't have to vaccinate my kid because the society you know they kind of understand that or they understand that oh well it is possible for general accepted norms to be proven wrong so then they start thinking well maybe there is something wrong with vaccines we've just been mistaken about it that an educated population there's a there's a point of education that's actually dangerous because of our other parts of our human qualities that you have to fight over like mm -hmm. fight against, right? Like I get my kid, I give them shots, they cry a whole bunch. The week later they get sick. I think, oh, that's correlated. 
right? Mm-hmm. Because I'm a pattern matching entity and that's, that's how I've survived. Or I went to go get a, a flu vaccine and then three days later I started getting a cold. Right. And it's like, eh, you probably were already feeling a little off and you figured, oh, I'll try it's to get that. probably not correlated. N- not so much like you probably didn't have the flu because you didn't think I should go to the hospital because that's is, what the flu is. The thing is that a, po- a false positive pattern matcher is a much safer uh, survival instinct mm-hmm. because, and the, the great idea there is you know you're walking through the woods and you hear a crack in the bushes like a creek a snap mm-hmm. a twig cr- creak you're like oh that could be a tiger that's out to get me and your fear instinct should be to guard yourself against it and if you do that and nine times out of ten there's no tiger you're alive and the ninth time the tenth time there is a tiger and you're able to protect yourself you're alive so in some regards that paranoia aspect or the guessing wrong the assumption mm-hmm. wrong is actually kind of a safer thing and that's probably why we have that quality right the precautionary principle right yeah. so my kid got sick okay I have a second kid don't do the vaccine and the problem is that it's not the same that comes to the conclusion of what's the right thing to do the scientific method it's not the same at all and so you get this education population that understands there's flaws in the in the ability to understand what is true and then you also match that with a paranoid kind of mentality of the human mind and you get a perfect recipe for people getting confused about what they should do right and i'm glad you brought up the scientific method because the scientific method this the primary reason why the scientific method exists is because we recognize that human observations are flawed like yeah. more than anything else that's what it does it says hey, I did this thing, and I followed these steps, and someone else following those exact same steps will come to the same conclusion, and that's how you can... Predict the world. Right. Or, hey, I did those same set of steps, and it didn't happen. Falsifiability. And that doesn't happen within the human mind. You have to have this other framework to be able to do that. And when you just look at YouTube videos, (laughs) or in this case with the story, it was uh, Amazon with a whole bunch of anti-vaccine movies uh, that they were... Like on their Prime Video service? Yeah. Okay. We don't vaccinate. Shoot them up. The truth about vaccines. Vax. From cover-up to catastrophe. You know, things like... Is Amazon's video service, can people, individual people's, publish their own videos to it? No, but they do have... You will have the mixture of movies like, you know, Raiders of the Lost Ark, and go like, oh, yeah. I love that movie. Yeah, and it'll show up as, you know, four stars or something like that. (laughs) And Come on, give Raiders of the Lost Ark five stars. No, I'm I'm talking about like the ratings that you'll actually see on there. Or let's say the, the Last Crusade. It'll show up as four stars. I believe that. And then it'll show me some other movie that's some vampire apocalypse or something like that. And it'll show up as three stars. You know, Pacific Rim may show up as three stars. Okay. That vampire apocalypse movie, let's just say the production... The production... Um, Value the production value is not. uh, It may be actually quite good for a hundred thousand dollar (laughs) budget, but it is not the same tier as the movies you go see in the theater that are being released in summertime. Like it's just not. So, are you saying that like the anti-vax films are there are not necessarily the that there's not as much money put into them? They're that second tier, that second or third tier. Interesting. Of they're not the the general release movies that have a budget, and I'm seeing this pattern of there are some movies that are the popular movies, and yeah. they are rated kind of how you would expect, and then there are these other films. other tier of movies that are rated 
from a much smaller audience that I think are more core to oh, that Okay, so audience. what you're saying is you get a movie that we'd all agree is a pretty good movie. It's got four or five stars, whatever. Mm-hmm. And you're like, oh, okay, that's a great movie. And then you see another one that's four or five stars. But if you, if you look down to it, it might have been only like 100 people saw it. And so those people love it, and that's why it's high rated, but it's actually not correlated to the quality or or what you might like about it. Right. Interesting. Uh, if these movies were submitted to your typical newspaper movie edit- movie reviewers, they would all be panned as... Right. People enjoying a movie versus what the reviewers say, that doesn't necessarily correlate. But Granted, but we're not talking about the nuance of like the reviewer says like, okay, did this thing well, but I didn't much care for this. I'm talking about this is a bad movie. Okay. This is a so Plan 9 bring, from Outer Space level bad movie. Why do you bring this up with we don't vaccinate, shoot them up, the truth about vaccines, these these anti-vaccine movies, What is are these lower quality? How Why are we bringing that up? Uh, well, I was talking about the the mixture of quality that's okay. in there. But, uh, so you're saying the catalog is a large catalog, and sometimes there's films that you wouldn't say are great movies, but they're there anyway. Right. And okay. I would actually say it's a function of Amazon Prime Video that... They're less selective of what they buy. Yes. Or what they make available. You do have to wonder with regard to tech companies, and sometimes they come to grips with it and sometimes they don't, but there is a damage that comes along with these movies, um, I'm trying damage to... with bad quality films. Yeah, uh, I think of it in the same way as the the History Channel. History Channel used to be nothing but Nuremberg rallies, <laughs> and in and of itself, I thought that was a very narrow view of history. But then they completely abandoned history and went. Now History Channel is aliens or um, pawn shops. Yeah. Right, where it's and, like, how, why is it called History Channel? Right, and yeah. Pawn Shop is like, oh, well, we need to appraise this and figure out how much it's worth, even though it's not even as good as Antique Roadshow on PBS. And it pays well, like you get viewers, sure, I mean, doing but it, it gives reason. a very distorted view of reality. Um, because if I look at a movie like Pacific Rim, I saw that recently, so it's on my mind, it is action-packed. It's not scientifically accurate at all, but no one that goes into it thinks for a second, oh, there are actual monsters that are tearing down the Golden Gate Bridge. Oh, there are actual monsters that are coming out of a transdimensional rift at the bottom of the ocean right now. Like it, There's, there's a credibility. You know, and why would you have to move in unison to make your neurosystem actually control a, a robot? <laughs> right. I mean, that doesn't make any sense. Just make the sensors more sensitive. Right. And, oh. Yeah. So any number of things that you – if you go out to the street and you say, hey, is Pacific Rim reality? At the same time, these movies here like, you know, we don't vaccinate, you know, they have an air and they are – purporting to be oh they're totally reality. purporting to be the truth yes they are presenting themselves absolutely as the truth and trying to convince someone that they are the truth and people are watching it and saying oh this is actually the case when they are completely fraudulent yeah i believe that is harmful yeah i believe that's harmful too yeah I so mean, why is amazon selling them because people want to buy them <laughs> I mean, many I, of them. Many uh, of them were for if they're Prime Video. A lot of times they're they're free. Um, they've been made available so that they have the distribution network of right. Amazon Prime. I, I got to say that that's a very good point, right? Like, so in in some way, if people are paying for a service, a regular service, and there's content on there they don't want to watch, um, or 
content on there that's lower quality or whatever. Mm-hmm. And in fact, it'd be better for the person to watch something else on the catalog. There's an argument to say that actually having that in the catalog could damage the service, right? If you have too much junk and you can't find the good stuff, that actually might make the service look worse. Which may be the reason why Amazon took the, the titles out rather than a, Amazon, a moral responsibility. Yes, Amazon they, took the titles out. They actually did drop them so that when you go looking for them, they say they're no longer available. What, what instigated this? Well, there's the question. Uh, Amazon does not comment on it. Um, it did follow a CNN business report that covered it and talked about the effect of this. And you mean the business report talked negatively about this yes. anti-vax movement and said, look at this, all these videos are available, and then recently after that, all the videos were gone? <laughs> yes. <laughs> yeah, that kind of looks like a smoking gun. That's yeah, true. so that's so there was a PR aspect to it, but it may not have been... What a, uh, because you can't speak to like what the actual sure. it may have just been the, like what it, about books because they're definitely anti-vax books on Amazon Amazon just has lots of books I don't know if you knew that I guess I have a bias to say books would be okay simply because it requires someone read <laughs> and if they have the, the wherewithal to sit down and okay. read there's a different tier there that is a giant judgment about reading value versus video value Yes, it is. And I will stand by it. Well, you are condescending and a jerk. <laughs> I, I learn a lot through video. I'm not saying you don't. Okay. I am saying the barrier to entry. The, for someone, the number of people that go around and look at a YouTube video and get an idea that vaccines cause autism or that vaccines will cause a, a disease a that is worse right. than, than the actual or thing itself. Or a whole bunch of malarkey about toxins or whatever. Yeah. Right. They will also, you know, you can also see these other videos, and I think that it just has. You're just arguing that video is a stronger, me- stronger medium than the written word, though. It requires less thought and. Uh, you're trying to think of yourself a grave, but no, no. On, on the contrary, I think of it in the same way as the effect of handguns on suicide. Um, where, <laughs> no, sir. If, no, it's good. I like the you, metaphor. I like it. I like it. If you yes, if you increase handguns, you have more suicide. Right. Sure. And because people will say, well, like, well, if you don't have guns, then people will ki- kill themselves anyway. That actually isn't the case when you look at the studies, because the gun requires no forethought. Right. You, you can, can act just, on impulse. You can do it when you're Jumping drunk. off a bridge requires you to walk to the bridge. So you're just going to have more if – you, if you give everybody a gun or you give half people guns and half people uh, bridges, you'll have more people killed by guns than bridges, right? Right. Because it's just easier. So you're saying that the video is so much easier – that you're okay with you're okay with the books because it takes so much more effort to get the book consumed. Right. Even huh. for like a Kindle book, it takes the time to go like, look that up. So okay, in that, in that it, argument, to it'd be totally okay if they only played that video, the Vax video, on a certain at a certain location. Like you could, you'd have to go to a certain location <laughs> to go watch this video. Then you'd be like, "Yep, make as many videos as you want." I actually have a problem with anti uh, anti vaccination videos because I believe that they are. Um, contributing to a, a potential public health crisis. Well, of course. Of course. Um, that's so the reason why I, we don't like them. Right, it's not like it's like, oh, it's a bummer people don't think correctly or something. No, it's because they have an effect on our society. Right. That, for example, measles um, ceased to be uh, endemic yeah. in the U.S. after 1990. Like, there stopped being measles cases just being passed around. Within, they only came from people traveling overseas and bringing it back. You know, or people yeah. coming from overseas and bringing it here. And this raised a whole other thing. If you think I'm a jerk now, you should see the the, uh, the Twitter post I put in, which was basically saying, if you don't vaccinate, 
if you want to say that that's a choice, okay, but you lose your passport. You don't get to leave the country and then contract diseases and bring them back. The reason I brought up this uh, this issue of it is true, basically, with herd immunity that you don't need to vaccinate every person, right? We need a certain percentage of people vaccinated. Except measles no, is like 90 to 95%. Okay, but that's still, as a parent, if you're just one of those people and everybody else does it, it's okay. Except that that 5% is including young infants who cannot get the vaccine and people who have compromised immune systems. I, I totally get that. But, but my point is that what else is society? Is it like the society has to do this, but it's okay... But as a personal choice, if you don't do it, it's not going to affect anything. Like if we, taxes, if everyone stopped true. paying your taxes, it's very comparable to taxes. That's true. Our society would crumble. That's true. But an individual can stop playing, and it's not going to affect anything. Yeah, other, okay. other than the knock of the door from the IRS. But yeah, well, unless you don't get caught, right? Right. Um, okay, so that's a good point. So it's anything that anything that ex- everybody expects to do it, so the society works that way. Because I was just thinking, like crimes, different. Most crimes are different than that, right? Where you know no one steals, but uh, it's okay if five percent steal. No, it's not, right? Because then right. it actually. Well, is it? No, I think that I think it's still well, society. More than five percent do steal and get away with it, but yeah. <laughs> All right. Okay. So Amazon had a whole bunch of videos and a whole bunch of books on anti-vax. CNN did a giant like announcement report about how bad these are pointed to these videos. And then right after that, the videos were gone. Yes. No comment from Amazon. Right. Thank you very much for the story, sir. All right, Miles. Now let's talk about our actual expertise, shall we? (laughs) The W3C, the World Wide Web Consortium, Mm -hmm. is a nonprofit group of individuals and corporations that are sponsored individuals. Headed by the person who invented HTML and HTTP. So the father of the World Wide Web. So it's kind of like the web. Yes. Yes. And it's a standards group that basically specifies, well, people are doing this and therefore we recommend that. People seem to go, okay, sounds good. And this is all done in the open. It's really cool methodology for governance. Some specs are better than others, but yeah. Yes. You talking about? You thinking about the coffee pot or teapot, rather? On the contrary, I was thinking about. Um, I was thinking of XSLT. Is XSLT part of the web? Part of the web standard? Oh yeah. Is it part of the browser support? Does browser support have to support it? Uh, they. I don't. None of these are XSLT mandates. Is none a, of these are mandates that XSLT a browser has to. XSLT is a uh, XML transformation language. That's yeah. what it is. Yeah. But it's a. It's complicated. Ex- Miles and I know a lot about style it. sheets language <laughs> transformations. I actually think if you're working in XML, XSLT is awesome. I uh, I got some weird looks at work when I was talking about like, oh, I like XSLT. And it was like, dude. Look, if you've got XML as one form and the output is also something that's a, a extensible markup language of some sort, XSLT is the way to go. Uh, right. Ex- there, except there's a whole bunch of people that are like, but you're using XML. You've already lost. <laughs> <laughs> I grant, I, and I, I grant them that that problem. Exactly. All right, so what is the World Wide Consortium working on today? Web Authn. Authn. Yeah. I'm not Authent- familiar with this. It's a authentication. Thing. I assume that it's authentication. Well, it could have been authorization. Authentication, authorization. Is it authorization right? and authentication? Uh, it's just authentication. Okay, so what are they doing with it? What's the difference between authentication well, goal, and authorization? Uh, authentication is you are who you say you are. Authorization is you are, after you. I know who you are, are you allowed to do this act? The authorization is much simpler. Authentication is the problem one. That's a hard thing to solve. Mm, well, okay. authorization. If you have act, if you have resources and you can authenticate people, you've pretty much solved the authentic- the authorization aspect. Right? You really haven't. 
Author- so? Authorization is hard. Why is authorization hard? If you control the data and you know who the people are, you decide to give them to or not. Oh, well, then you can spread the data. I mean, that's, but that's about control. Having access to data, like authorization, like HIPAA. Authorization is a hard problem. Okay, not just who okay. you are, but HIPAA, what you're allowed to get. <laughs> I got you had me at HIPAA. Health Insurance Privacy and Portability Act. It is the thing that makes it impossible to share medical records, and therefore really hard to have AI train on medical information. And therefore, we're behind the times on actually solving medical problems. Yeah. I'm sorry, health information. Anyway, what is the authorization one? Web auth in. Well, one of the things that WebAuthn is looking for is getting rid of passwords, password-free logins. Yeah, that'd be nice. <laughs> well, password sucks. And here's the thing. For the most part, uh, for some services like, say, Google or your bank, I don't think you should get rid of passwords. I think that it should be a two-factor authentication. Uh, uh, maybe you can get rid of passwords, but you shouldn't just rely on just a, a one a single challenge it should be it shouldn't be a single factor authentication it should be a at least a two factor but there are a lot of sites geekspeak.org where not having a password really isn't that big of a deal this isn't to say that you just put in a username and say hi i'm lyle and everything's okay there needs to be something more to it and that's where webauthn comes into play this is where you have some type of authentication token that would be managed by the client in many cases. Meaning the user. Right. Let's say I have you have your phone, your phone supports Face ID, that it would be able to authenticate you against the website by using that biometric um, rather than a password. And that would actually be more secure than a password <laughs> in many yeah. cases. And for me, I have a phone that is pre-Face ID, and I would use Touch ID. So even though they are two different methods for generating it, they would still be the access to the website because the method, which we normally think of as being a password being uh, the way you get into it, it's not. It's just one of the many ways that you could authenticate a user. So let's let's talk about, instead of talking about the real spec here, you've read up on the spec, you understand mm-hmm. how it's going to work. Um, I'm, a, I'm visiting geekspeak.org for the very first time, and I've got my phone with me that has this web auth in supported and the mm-hmm. website has web auth in support in- enabled. Mm-hmm. I go and I say, I want to create an account. Mm-hmm. So I click the create account and I fill in some information like my, ma- my name and my email address. So we have kind of a relationship. I don't have to though. Just, it could be what just a name. It actually, you may not even need a name. Okay. But I some don't, sites. but I don't let, let's say for the Geekspeak site, we actually want a first name. That's sure. all we care about is okay. some kind of username. It has to be named. So I go ahead and register Lyle at geekspeak.org. And in, where it says put in your two fa- passwords, it doesn't say that. What does it do instead? You have a register button. And you click that register button. And then that triggers the browser to say, which is implement, implementation dependent, do something that provides some type of secure access to a resource. In the case of your phone, it might be like, oh, do you want to enable Face ID for this site? Like, okay. Um, yeah. For my phone, just like apps do you do. want to? Yeah. Do you want to enable Touch ID for this site? And then you press on it. You okay. Know? Or it could so what say, you're saying is do you want to? The website just says, "All right, we've got a username. Now we need to make some authentication happen. We and need you just some... say the browser. Hey, browser, take care of this for me. Give me something I can then recognize you again for. We need a public key from you. 
Okay, so this is going to be a public key. You need key, to generate keys. your private key, public key, private key pair. Okay, and then so give us the some. browser is going to implement this, and on an iOS, the browser would actually use the 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 I can't remember what it's called, but the little thing that's in your the same interface for your Touch ID as my Face ID is actually the same protocol the browser would actually implement for the OS to do mm-hmm. this for you. Yeah. And at that point, what's being saved? What, what would what would the web? So now we've done that, and it sends the public key, and now the website saves the public key and says, "Lyle is this public key." Mm-hmm. Okay. Next time I want to log in, mm-hmm. I go and I click on login, and I type in Lyle, but I don't actually have to do that. Mm-hmm. I could just what it gives me something. I mean, what happens to the browser? At that point? Well, at that point, the browser will say, "Hey, I'm." Uh, I'm, I'm trying person. to log in, so the, right. the, the, my client's saying I'm logging, and the website's saying what? The server generates some information. That would be pertinent, sends it to you. And then the client then says, oh, okay, so I need to... So it sounds like it does have to know that I'm Lyle. Because it has to make... Because the the signing it has to do has to do with my public key. So I'm going to have to identify myself that way. Right, but it doesn't need to necessarily know you're Lyle. That's an extra thing that could be added in to say this is another... Another aspect to it, like the username, or it could me, just be just a straight. Okay, let me this talk about is this. the user ID. We have ten thousand members on Geekspeak.org, mm-hmm. and I come up with my browser, and the website has to hand something to me that I can then do something with and send it back. So, do I also submit my public key and say this is my public key, and it looks up the public key and goes, "Oh, that's who you are," and then I also sign something with my private key, and it goes, "Oh, yep, that's true." Part of that is implementation dependent. It depends upon the security uh, principles of that site. The site will determine what it needs and. You know what it can ignore, but but can I assume that this protocol just supports only the public key as they had uh, uh, all the right? Necessary? Oh, yeah, yeah. It okay, will okay. never send the private so key. In, no, but that's not about that. It's about identification. So if you right. go to log in and some code is there that I'm supposed to do something with, if I then take that thing and I sign it with my private key, pro- and that could be proved with my mm-hmm. parent, my public key, and then I hand back the signed thing to the site, the site doesn't know what user it is, and therefore it's got 10,000 public keys to check against. That doesn't make any sense. There will be, so I'd have there's, to sense there's an, that there's There is an identifying token to it. It's yeah. the hash of my public key, probably, like the, the key of my published key. I said, this is who I am, and I pass in the encrypted the signed thing. So sure. a, this is a very easy... De- like, this is not even that complicated. This is exact. Like, it's not meant to be so complicated because people need to implement it. Yeah, but it needs to at least follow best principles so that you people will want to use it. Okay, so let me ask yeah. you this though: If my browser, my Safari browser on my iOS device, goes to Geekspeak.org and creates a public key and private key pair, keeps the private key somewhere and sends the public key, where does the private key go? Like, how do I then move it to my new phone? Ah, uh, see, there's a. That is Did they also talk about that spec. That is uh, vendor implementation specific. That See, is that's not, the actual problem space that we're dealing with. It because is because if that doesn't get handled perfectly well, because right now when I get a new phone, anything inside my my password vault or not my password vault, excuse me, the token that represents the Face ID implementation mm-hmm. and the the Touch ID implementation, that stuff is all gone. It doesn't go. It doesn't leave the phone. Right now, there is nothing stopping a site from saying, "Oh, you want to sign on with a different." Um, client. Yeah, but then and you then have to have some kind of proof. I mean, that's the, but that's the thing. Yeah, that is, and you sh- you should something that comes in there, and it shouldn't necessarily be based upon email. Yeah, but that's, that's, that's that that's, is also a weak link. But see, that's the problem about this is that once you make the clients responsible for the secret information and handling it, you got to be really good at having the clients handle that data. 
Like the oh, whole yeah, problem, the whole problem space, and the reason why we have oh, well, set, reset your password, your email, is that we know that people won't lose their email passwords, and even if they do, they can get it back from their ISP potentially, right? So because of that, that's how we actually balance all of our security. You go to your bank and you want to reset and stuff; they're going to send an email. They're going to know your social security number. There's going to be some details that right. are actually and, pretty easy to. Falsify. Okay, so there's there's a part that I guess I wasn't. Uh, Clear. Really understanding what you were looking for. Yes, it will require. It is not just stored in the browser. It's not just stored you know, right there. Um, is there a recommendation? It, yes. So, with regard to a phone, where is it stored? It's stored in the keychain vault. Yeah. You know, for for iOS for devices, iOS, like, sure. um, and that is not necessarily a you know Safari specific or whatever. That's you know, the I mean, it's, it's the same issue as two-factor authentication right now, right? Like when I sign it, when I log into my Google account, if I log in from a new device, Google goes, give your second authentication token or use you know, your device. Right. So there's already some methodologies being implemented in this form. So what does this provide for us that's different, this new spec? Um, so this is one, if you have, for example, uh, we've already talked about the case where if you have a phone that has some type of secure yeah. archive, yeah. you know, vault that works. So what happens with my 2015 MacBook Pro um, that doesn't have those facilities, doesn't have a Touch ID or a T2 chip? Uh, there are things like YubiKeys. Yeah. They're the new generation of those YubiKey 5. Um, you put them into a USB slot, you leave them there, and you touch them, and that's how you authenticate. And the uh, key pairs are actually stored on that YubiKey. Right. They're not stored on the rest of the system. So right. if you took that out and put it into another system, yeah. that works. But you see the problem, right? I go to geekspeak.org. I spend four years there. I'm really enjoying Everything's great. I've got all this important information there. And then I change phones. And I don't know what that... Uh, there's no way for the website to understand who the heck I was. That was just a public key. And you don't have that anymore? Nope. That account is locked. You can never access it. Oh, if you if you lose your phone and don't just migrate your settings right. over? So as soon as we do this, we, we incur this giant responsibility upon the user. And I'm not saying it's bad. I think it's good. But we've been giving them responsibility with passwords and it's been failing for a long time. So we give better tools and better support and all that. But the truth is, where is that going to be saved? Well, it better be saved in your, your iCloud uh, database, right? So that when you log, you know, you're basically going to go back to Apple again and you're going to have a... But how is this any different from the days before you had like Google federated login and then you had it? So then you had this choice of do I log in? I'm going to log into the site with my email address and password or I'm going to log in with Google or I'm going to log in with Facebook. But the, I, there were I, transition periods. The reason I'm saying this is that if you've got a relationship with a, cl- a customer mm-hmm. and you're a website and this is how you're doing the authentication, you better have some backup plan because that person will lose their phone or they will lose their credentials mm-hmm. and all of a sudden you'll lose track. So now you have to have a second method of methodology of authenticating them. And that means either you give them a password or you know their email address or you know their SMS number, some other way that they can communicate that this is who I am now because my phone used to be my identity and it's not anymore. Right. So and once you implement that, then you have the problem with the back door. You, you, it doesn't, I don't think it really solves anything. Do you? Yes, I do. What does it solve? It solves crappy passwords. Yeah, but you could have solved crappy passwords by making all the passwords 20 characters long. No, you can't because people will do what they always do if you say mandate 20 characters. They won't use the site or they will use the same 20 character password everywhere on every single site or they will be very careless with that password and and put it like they're going to make a password that's all zeros. Yes. You know, or something like that. So if you take away 
people's ability to make passwords and you do it in some other manner, it's almost always going to be better than what people are going to do on average. You're in, you're improving the security by taking the human being out of that chain. If I use an iOS device and I go to a website and I use this new methodology and my public key, private key pair is inside a vault that Apple controls because Apple controls the OS, it's not my identity. Seriously. You don't think that's true? It's Apple's identity of me. I think in terms of I don't of secur- have management of it. I, I think have no secu- ability to know what it is. I think security is about um, threat trust. models and trust. and trust. Do I trust that Apple is not going to sabotage my OS anytime soon I'm compared to... I'm not talking about to- that. I'm not talking, no, I'm talking about this very simple problem. Six months later, I decide to go to Android. Mm-hmm. What's my public key for the GeekSpeak.web website? Well, that's locked in securely into Apple's thing. Ah, that's a very I good can't point. get it out. I'm now locked to the operating system because I can't log into GeekSpeak anymore. So now the websites have to implement some methodology for transferring their – because you can't trust the vendor. Well, the website to, to be able to say like these two keys are tied to the same account – is a different So what you problem. could do, so what the website could do is implement a situation where you want to migrate. So then you go to all the websites you've logged into with your iOS device. You say, I'm now switched to Android. And they go, oh, here's the field to add your other token now. Okay, now you see the problem is that once you make the security so secure that the operating system has to manage it, you are beholden to stay in the operating system for your identity. Well, that's only in the case for um, iOS device, you know, that type of thing. It's and- not, no, it's not the case for a YubiKey. It's not the case for something it like is. that. It is. It's in the YubiKey. You can't get out of the YubiKey. Now you have to use a YubiKey. You see, that's the problem is that once you make the security good enough to make sure not to mess with the stupidity of in- individual users, you put the power in someone else. It's the corporations that control those keys. So now the YubiKey is – you can't get the public key out of the YubiKey. It is that YubiKey. This actually, is actually you can make backups. You can make backup YubiKeys. But yeah, that's a whole other – But you see the problem space I'm talking about, right? Yes, but you think it's paranoia? Well, I see that. No, I mean, I acknowledge that there are going to be problems. I am, I am not saying that there won't be problems. What I am saying is that those problems are less severe and fewer than the problems we have now with passwords. Okay, I totally agree. But the World Wide Web Consortium could have written that into the spec. The methodology to get your public keys out in a standard form. Like it should have more because if it doesn't, it's do, out of it's out of scope. Um, I get that that it's out of scope, but the corporations are not Apple's not how you any, how you get your data out of a secure vault on an iOS device is different from how you would get a backup off I, of a YubiKey. I totally it, agree, but there is no reason for Apple to implement ability for you to transfer your identity away from iOS to transfer it into an Android. Phone. Oh, I, I agree. And therefore, once you made a relationship of this thing, you now have all these tendrils. So let me put it this way. With passwords, it's true. It's upon the onus of the person to make a good password and to manage that. So I use a piece of software, which I happen to trust, called 1Password. It generates Mm -hmm. random 20-digit things for me that are called passwords that I don't understand and know what they are or anything. But that vault, I can can operate and open anytime I want without the internet. And I can go and print them and I can go look at them. And their their methodology of payment is about helping me with that software. Mm-hmm. Anytime I feel unhappy with that, they haven't locked that down. I can get access to it. Mm-hmm. So I'm able to use it, which is really awesome. If I switch into Apple, I'm not sure what their methodology or their reasoning is. The truth is, 
I really like the company. I like what they do. I think they're really good with privacy and all that. And I kind of like the vault aspect that they use right now. I start saving my passwords in iOS's vaults because it's really convenient. But I also understand the generation of new passwords I'm doing in my own tool. So I know where it is and it's easily managed. At the same time, other people don't do this. And I get that. I totally get the reason for it. But I'm really nervous about people's identities being locked up with the corporate, the phone that they have. Yeah. You don't think that they could write this into the, the spec saying you have to have an export methodology that allows a user to move their keys between devices? You wouldn't have to implement the specification. You just have to say, if you're abiding oh, by this... Oh, just do a mandate. If you're abiding by this, you must allow the user to move their keys between vendors. That's all they'd have to do. And then it would be like, Apple might do a crappy job of it, but at least it would be an understanding that it had to be done, and people could write software to do it for you. Anyway, just a thought. This is awesome. I mean, I'm really... we got to get rid of passwords. Yeah. Just because making the passwords longer isn't... You can't make people do better passwords. You, you can't. We've been trying to get people to do better passwords for, and passwords in and of themselves, just they're not keeping pace with the ability of, you know, a GPU to just crank through or a a GPU farm to crank through them. Yeah, I agree. I got to say that, um, the iOS 12 that I'm now using as my standard, it's been out for a while. Mm -hmm. Um, it's integration with password managers is amazingly good. Do you use one password? Uh, I don't. Okay. Do you use a password manager? No. Okay. And I should. Just get one password. It's worth it. It's friggin' great. I've already downloaded it, actually. Okay. I just haven't used it. Um, and I actually, for one password, my vault is encrypted with my pass- my one password, right? Mm-hmm. And then that vault is saved in my Dropbox, which means that Dropbox has a copy, but it is encrypted by a long password you have to memorize, right? Mm-hmm. So that password is kind of a pain to use. But with iOS, every time I boot my phone... Um, I open one password, I do my authentication token, you'd be your thumbprint mm-hmm. or my face ID. And then as the, uh, I, it, that's how I unlock it. So I don't type it very often. Go into any password on the webpage or in an app, most apps support this. There's just a button to mm-hmm. get the password out of it. In fact, auto completion, it actually comes up and says, hey, this site is registered to this domain. Do you want to use your one password thing? You push it once, face ID or, or thumbprint ID, and it auto fills it in. Mm-hmm. It is it's just made everything like I don't feel bad about logging out of apps and logging back in if I want to. Like it's just it's just the problem has gone away. I love it on the Netflix account. Like I log in and out of Netflix all the time, of course, right? Because I'm a developer there, and it just works. It's just really, 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 really easy. Um, and of course, every password is friggin' long and unbelievably hard. Every once in a while, you run into an app that isn't updated, doesn't have the most updated specs, and then you're like, oh, I gotta paste a, I gotta type a or paste it right. And so you start doing paste, and then the app actually reloads every time you run the app. And so I have occasionally had to, you know, open my laptop and look at the password and type it into my phone at the same time, which is kind of a bummer, but that'll get better over time. So I I feel like that's almost a better implementation because I get to choose the vendor I'm using for my password management. Better from the point of view of your security and your comfort, perhaps, but noticeably more friction than you go to a site and you look at it and you're on. Well, that's that's what I'm saying is that's what it's right. like. For me, that's what it's like. Right? They put it, they give a username in the password field. I click the cursor so that it's in there. I'm, if the website's implemented correctly and then I push a button on my phone and it logs me in. There's no, I don't, I don't put usernames in. I don't put passwords in. All that happens is I push the login button on the website and then I, scan my face or whatever. Okay. So 
it's the same, right? It's just that I have control over the passwords. I'm not saying it's okay. I'm not saying it's better, but in some it has the okay. Has now let me say this: if Apple says this is great, the way we're going to implement this is we're going to integrate it into our methodology for allowing other apps to manage this thing, and one password takes this responsibility over and uses it. Great, fine, right? Or or uh, what LastPass is another one that does the same thing. Mm. Great. If it w- if it's not Apple doing it or Apple doesn't mandate that it's them, then I'm not. I don't have a problem with this. And maybe Apple won't. Maybe Android won't. Maybe it'll be fine. Web authentication, pretty cool. Yeah, the actual spec is called um, FIDO2. That's the the web authentication component of it. An API for accessing public key credentials, level one. Yeah, the the YubiKey, you know, it's fifty bucks. But I'm kind of thinking like I may just pay for that fifty bucks. It doesn't help you on your phone. Uh, actually, there is a there is a YubiKey you put on your keychain. It's NFC, a so software it could, one. Yeah, oh, it okay. could. Oh, that's kind of compelling. What do you think about your phone being? I I, uh, I now do a lot of Apple Pay, so I use my phone, and um, there's actually an app for opening the Netflix building on my phone. Mm-hmm. So pretty, you know, my car doesn't start with it, but I could definitely modify my car. That the uh, I have a friend who has a Tesla three in his car phone. Just, yeah, yeah. So I got a colleague that has a phone and can get into their house, into work, and start their car all from a phone, and of course, by so like they don't need any other, they don't need keys, they don't need wallet into my house. I'm not okay with. Why not? Because that requires electricity. I don't want yeah. my house security be, being dependent upon electricity. Yeah. A I car, there's already electricity there. It's for the car to run. It has I, to. You know, I'm, I'm just like not, I'm not scared of locks. Like locks don't really disturb me. So like being locked out of my house, I mean, yeah. Oh, it's, it's not about being locked out that way. It's, uh, but electricity in your door, I mean, let's say the electricity is out and you can't get in your house. Yeah, you can. Like, is, you know, we all have windows. They break. I mean, it's your house. It's not like you're going to get in trouble. It's kind of a bummer. <laughs> Wait, but you're talking about like you have to break the window. Well, how often? Like you're, you're saying the electricity when is, the, when is the power going to be out? During a storm. No, no they're battery operated, dude. It's not like you lose electricity and all of a sudden you can't open your house. The whole thing, they're, they're designed to, to deal with that problem. All right. And besides, you're going to have like two doors and they both have batteries. And I don't know. I think the problem, the bigger problem with those is that how do you find one that's actually good? Are they because rechargeable batteries that are just... The ones I've used Omnilocks, which is one of the larger companies and stuff. I did it at, at uh, UCSC a lot. I had a lot of those things. Are they like induction charging on the on the? No, wall? no. You open them up and you put in batteries. Okay. So one day you just forget to change the battery. And no, no. Because they actually warn you when you use them that their batteries are low. And they last a long time. You know, the, the batteries not used that much. And this is a keypad one, though. But it was also it had Wi-Fi in it, right? So they were, being ho- they were calling home to the ser- server, which was a Microsoft server. And there is your problem. Mm. And that is why I was like, ugh. So when a student would say, hey, I need access to this room and I was at home, I could go onto a web page and, and authenticate them to unlock. And I didn't even want to think about how bad the security was. <laughs> <laughs> this is like seven years ago at UCSD and Microsoft SQL Server back in. I just, you know, yeah, that's the reason I don't do it. I'm not so upset about the, the Microsoft in there because I've no, no, seen it's people. No, it's not that. Yeah, it's. it's it's the phoning home, yeah. The- it's just that, well, I mean, the thing is, it only connected to a local server, right? So it was on the right. local network. Because, like, we managed it. I'm sure it was secure. The whole point, though, is that my front door with a key is 90% better than any internet lock. Because the people that can attack that door have to come to my house. Versus you have an internet lock, and the 
globe can do it. The entire mm-hmm. you know, 7 billion right. people can do it. So it's just like, it's just safer from a physical aspect. Like, don't be connected to the network when you're dealing with security like that. Yeah. That's the same reason I don't have a nest in my house, right? Like, is it that hard to turn a dial when you're at the house? Like, it's not. Well, Nest has aspects of it. It learns. But yeah, there's. <laughs> and of course, I have Google Home. <laughs> Right. But but at the same time, yeah, I don't see why that learning aspect has to be exported out. One of the things they they were aiming for with Nest, the thermostat, was that they'd be able to crowdsource information about how power is being used and when. And that kind of makes sense, but I would rather that was handled by the smart meter. Yeah. And and had just my personal preferences handled within the network, my own network on Nest. And not have the well, two conflated. The thing with the smart meter, though, is you don't decide what company has the smart... It's not your smart meter. It's the corporation's smart meter. So if they start analyzing your patterns of usage and stuff... No, and smart meter would be pg e Yeah, exactly. The company that... Oh, okay. You don't have a yeah. choice what power company it is, right? Right. It's going to be the company that serves that area. So now they're collecting data and usage patterns on who you are and keeping track of what your house does. And sure, they do that, but there is a... <sighs> I see the desire to have individuals kind of have more access to decide, I want to use a Nest or I want to use some other 70, 50, 70 companies that right, do this but kind why, of thing. I don't understand why those are – you tracking your – having something where you can track your own power mm-hmm. is a different thing to me than broadcasting to Google, for example – or, oh, totally. or sorry, to, to Nest, no, totally. what your electrical power but, is. But let me put it this way. If I can say, hey, I want to have um, – I want to have a kickback of money coming back to my house because I don't really care when my house is hot and cold. Go ahead and can, you can go ahead and deviate it based off of power usage. And so some other company that's control that is selling power to the PG the electrical system says, okay, we have 30,000 homes and we can deviate their temperature and their air conditioning systems by this amount that they agreed to. And therefore we can reduce load and increase load based off of how much turbine wind is happening and mm. such. So that ability to be, uh, decided by the consumer rather than what electricity That's provider. That's fair, yeah. I kind of like that aspect. And so Nest possibly could produce that. Some other startups are doing that as well. So there's that aspect. But then the other thing you could say is, well, that's fine. Why can't you say, hey, smart meter, send my data to this company. That's who's controlling my usage. Um, and the Nest, of course, does control a high power usage system. Right. right? You could also theoretically give smarter usage to your refrigerator and freezer and say that I like it at this temperature, but I'm okay with it going less than that. It's almost like we're talking about where privacy should happen. (laughs) So that's the thing about all these systems. Like I actually kind of would love to have smart switches in my house for, you know, for lighting control and Mm -hmm. stuff. Because it would be kind of cool to be able to push a button and have, you know, my TV come out of its control and all the lights dim and, you know, get ready for... Uh, movie night with the family. I'd like that rather than mm-hmm. walking around and pushing the buttons or just in general, like when it's time to go to sleep, having the lights fade out and get, letting people know hey, it's time to go to bed. I kind of like that idea. I would use it, but all of the light systems out there now are go ho- phone home. Mm-hmm. And so you're, you're buying into that. Yeah. They have that notion like of that. like, you can control it from your smartphone from anywhere in the planet. You can turn something. And I'm like, but where are the options to say, I don't want, that. Because they all requ- they all require that intermediary, yeah, right? Because it's so much easier. They they have to have a server, right? And so right. it's so much easier for them to well, run one server and run sixty thousand homes off of it. Uh, I wasn't even thinking about that. I was thinking more along the lines of you can't go into someone's network to be able to control that way. Right. They need to poke their hole out because having people try to manage their network security. Yeah, like that would yeah. be a nightmare. It would so be a nightmare. Just one but going out, it, but yeah, and that is the the problem. 
there needs to be some proxy. It's eventually essentially a proxy. Yeah. And that's the part where I'm like, you know what? I'm just not comfortable. I'm fine with saying I don't get access to my house from the internet in exchange for no phone home. Right. Like, but you don't get that option. Right. Right. And that's the thing is that even like the way that you want your phone to turn off your light switch, how do you perceive that working without a phone home? Where's the server? Your phone has to know the IP address that your Wi-Fi router is getting to your light switch? That's actually kind of well, complicated. That's what I, was, I would have thought something along the lines of zero comp for bonjour would, would handle that. Yeah, that if you're on your network, then, it, like would, yeah, then yeah. it would say, like, this is what the service is, and that's how you, right. you find it. And then, it. of course, the person that's selling them says, well, you got to make sure that your, your Wi-Fi router supports the zero confirmation bonjour. Is that what you called it? The router? I think the routers are all the right. Routers all support. What about zero the people comp? that have you know uh, two Wi-Fi access points and they're on different uh, different networks? Like people don't really know how their Wi-Fi is configured, right? right? So, well, that and, and, and people also look and say like, oh, I can I can see my you know my printer. my my camera that's looking out over my pool from from anywhere, and the implications of what that means security wise isn't really. Yeah. Uh, I, because people don't it's not saying that someone is is dumb right. i mean along the lines of it's not their area of expertise yeah they they're not programmers and it shouldn't have to expect that people be programmers to be able to make intel make good decisions about security so you and i would agree that what we'd like is some kind of protocol where i can have a server i control at my home that I can have a vendor, I can buy it from a vendor, whatever, and that server becomes the thing that everything calls back to, and there's a protocol for that, so such that all of my house communications, controlling, video capturing, all that stuff stays in my home network. If you have a server that's inside your, it, it depends on what you're going for. If you're going for that, I can access it from anywhere. No, I don't okay, care if, about. That. Okay, if you're talking about just from within your home, I don't see why. Bonjour, just like the device right. that's doing it is, right. so, is the server. But you and I would agree that there would be a way to do that would be desirable for us. Yes. Right. But to explain that, 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 that desire is not necessarily engaged. Not everybody understands that the reason for that. Right. They want to buy the $40 light switch that just works versus the probably more expensive protocol setup configuration. You got to manage like it. It, there has to be the the problem is there's not enough motivation for people to stay to to be safer and be more private. Mm-hmm. And I definitely see it with the Google Homes and the Amazon Alexas and stuff. They're convenient. They're nice and convenient. And you know what? I would. This wouldn't be a fail safe, but this is where I see legislation with regard to privacy being important to be able to say to companies, these are the rules. Yeah. Because right now they're really the rules are very nebulous if yeah. they exist at all in, in many areas. Well, I, and I think the reason that's the case is that these things are complicated. We're speaking about what we kind of want, but there's not clear language about it, right? Mm-hmm. We don't. We have. We're the, the technology growth is so fast around these things that we have not culturally produced a language to communicate our concerns, and so or our desires. We don't. We can't talk about this well. We want privacy. We want security. Like that doesn't even have any meaning. Right, because when it comes down to it, what we actually want has a much more rich, nuanced thing. If you sat down and really graphed it out and really dealt with it and tried to figure it out, the amount of uh, complexity is so great. We need metaphoric. We need language to come in to actually allow us to communicate what this means. Is that true? Because I think of you know credit card processing, you know PCI compliance, 
Like that is very well defined and it's not so much personal privacy that comes along with it, but there is a, a, a data integrity sure. that goes along with it. Yeah, but, 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 uh, but that's from, a perfect from example. Levels. Wouldn't it be great if you and I could just transfer credit to each other without a bank being involved? Sure. That'd be lovely. Why wouldn't we? You know? Mm-hmm. You owe me money, I owe you money, blah, blah, over a period of time, you get paid off, whatever. Like, the system doesn't work that way because the system was created by large institutions to handle multiple individual customers. Well, the system predates <laughs> internet yeah, transactions. Oh, totally, yeah, totally, totally. But my point is that we... Yeah. So the, the thing I'm talking about, the language thing, is I don't. I want a system that can control my home that has an open protocol that does not have to phone home. That in some ways we kind of we know what phone home is, right? Mm-hmm. But like me using that phrase, that concept of phone home, it's not. It's 20 years old, if or less, right? Like it, these these. Oh, terms, see, I, I recently worked on an IoT project, so it's very fresh in my mind. Right, but what, what I'm saying is that this is not something that my not something that every consumer understands the concept of. Right, right. They think of the cloud. The cloud is this great thing. Well, it really metaphorically just means that a corporation owns your pri- your private data. That's what the cloud actually means, right? So like. We're gonna we're gonna get better at understanding these concepts of what the impacts are, and I guess that's the exciting part about it is that we see in the space where society's not understanding it fully, and we're gonna get into the space where people do understand it better, and that's kind of cool. Yeah, it would just be nice to have something codified where you have you have some device and there are gr- gradations saying like this is a grade A privacy device and. That means that it does not phone home. It does not make outside communication about your data. And then you have the grade B. And that one does phone out, but no information is ever saved or processed. And that would probably involve you having to pay a provider to you know maintain the infrastructure to do that. Uh, That's yeah, this, sound, this sounds nice. And grade C would be the data comes through, but... Personal data may not be preserved. It has to be anonymized in some way, and then you can use that data. But it cannot be. Um, and you're saying that farmed off to third parties can only you, be used for service. And then grade D would be then it can be sold, but it still must be anonymized. Right, right. Um, and, then, and then having rules okay. that go. So, along those. so then you would say that we'd we'd have some kind of body similar to the FCC that would allow would kind of look at it and give you a license and then you can you can sell your nest cam thing and it gets a b or you can sell it at different rates and then when you're a consumer you're going in you're like all these different cameras this one's got an a security rating all these other ones have b's this one's got an f and a consumer's like oh i'm gonna get the a and so you're basically gonna push you're gonna push an understanding of a is gonna be more expensive than b because b's they're gonna be able to monetize yeah and maybe a b c might be a bad thing no i think that's a great i mean i definitely think that that's the kind of space we need to get into um. Yeah, that definitely feels like, and maybe these Actually, mistakes. Maybe that is good, yeah. Like yeah, the, something really simple. That like A that. seems restriction. Kind of like I don't really need that. I want to have this. I'm going to go for the B and, because it and gives maybe, me more access. And maybe yeah. you know we actually have a different, a few different metrics like that. We talk about privacy. We talk about security, and then we also talk about um, uh, shared social good. And these are all different ratings, right? The more privacy you give, the more data you give about yourself is actually better for the society because we can, you know, use machine mo- learning models to control mm-hmm. the amount of power we use in a certain area, right? So there's a benefit there. So then a consumer can decide what to do. I think that it's true that we need to come up with that kind of level of simplicity, just like the restaurant ratings in, in Southern California, right? But they're also, the reason why I brought up legislation, because just saying what I described, ABCD, just requires some organization umbrella to say right. like, hey, 
believe we're certifying devices and then have people buy into it. Um, there's that question of what happens if they violate that trust. That's the hole where I see there, the, the ability to audit, to be able to say like, no, they did something that was obvious. Like, well, you are not allowed to use someone's information. It was just supposed to be a pass-through, but you actually took the data. Well, like it wasn't recall. anonymized. Yeah, and then you were, and you sold it to a third party. It'd be like recall, right? You'd have to get, you'd have to submit a recall, and if you have a, a bad unit, you'd have to get it repaired or get reimbursed. Uh. I was actually thinking in terms of like damages or criminal liability, but that's a whole other. Yeah, for for negligence, negligence yeah. of your data. Yeah, well, we're definitely going to see more of that kind of thing, right? Where if data, not gets- definitely, not unless you actually see laws passed for it. I mean, whether or not someone is liable for adhering to, um, you know, a certain standard or whatever, that's that's what laws are. That's what that's true. Yeah. So definitely, you know, it comes back down. We keep we keep kind of concluding with these larger technical problems that we need legislation. So are you going to get into politics? <laughs> Who says I'm not right now? That's true. Well, thank you, Miles. It's been a pleasure chatting with you today. You too. I'm Lyle Troxell. This is GeekSpeak. GeekSpeak is a registered service mark of David Lawrence. It's used, used by permission. And GeekSpeak is Creative Commons Attribution 3.0. You can use our stuff any way you'd like, as long as you give me and Miles some credit. Or GeekSpeak some credit, whatever. You can learn more about the show at geekspeak.org. Every episode has a page about more stuff that we talked about. And uh, you can even learn how to support our program by going to geekspeak.org slash support. I'm Lyle on Twitter. Miles Elam is Miles Elam on Twitter. Mm-hmm. Is that good? Yep. Sound good? Sounds good. Mm-hmm.